Man, I'm excited about the message this morning because as we're in the book of Genesis, it's super important that younger people get this because it is their generation that is at risk right now. Amen? In fact, if you're, a, if you're 30 and younger, would you raise your hand? 30 and younger, raise your hand. Okay, teenagers, that's 30 and younger, that's you. Raise your hand. There we go. Good. We got a ton of teenagers here this morning, that's which is great. And uh, we also have a ton of first-time guests here this morning, so let's give all our guests a hand again. We're excited. All right. Charles, come on up here. Charles is going to read our scripture for us this morning. I'll give you this microphone right here. And you can follow along on the screen or on your own device or Bible as we read from Genesis chapter 4. Genesis four sixteen. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. Appreciate that, Charles. So my freshman year in college, the world almost came to an end as we know it. And a lot of people did not know this. In 1983, this is Lieutenant Stanislav Petrov. He was in charge of monitoring the nuclear threat from the United States. He was working the overnight shift and around 2.15 in the morning, on his screen appeared to be what was five intercontinental ballistic missiles coming from the United States over the North Pole aimed at Moscow. And his job was to report that immediately to the person who would then push the red button and fire a response and send nuclear bombs to North America. He looked at this, though, and rather than making a rash, hasty decision, he thought to himself, why would they only fire five? Why would they not fire what we thought would be the expected 128 on the first wave? Why just five? And he thought, certainly something is wrong. And he checked his computer, and he found out that there was a glitch, and there was no nuclear weapons coming at Moscow. And he just let it go. Had he made a wrong decision, we might not even be here today, okay? This, and your decisions matter. The decisions you make, whether they're in haste or you thoughtfully think them out, have ripple effects for generations. And this is what we see now. We're going to look at this morning of the ripple effects that hit the world because of Adam and Eve's decision, because of Cain's decision to kill his brother, and just humanity's decisions to say, I'm going to run my own life rather than let God be in control. So we're going to talk about these things this morning. So as we take this passage apart... Genesis chapter 4, and as we go through, even we're going to cover a lot of territory. And as you may have noticed when Charles was reading, we skipped a few verses. I'm going to cover them later, but I just kind of skipped through the genealogy because I want to go through it in detail with you later. But we're going to divide this passage up into four areas. First of all, there's Cain's faithless flight. Cain is going to flee from God, and we're going to discuss that. We're also going to talk about Cain's flawed family, how that Cain's dumb decisions hurt his family for generations to come. We're going to look at the third thing here that, uh, here we go, if I can get it to cooperate here. Lamech's fatal flight, fatal fight, Lamech's fatal fight. And then finally, we're going to look at, get to the good news and on a happy note, 
Adam's faithful family. Adam's faithful family. So let's look at Cain's faithless flight. It says that then Cain went. Notice it says Cain wasn't sent away from the presence of the Lord. He went away from the presence of the Lord. He chose to leave God's presence. Okay? Now, God's presence is everywhere, ultimately, but God's presence was even felt closer to the garden, especially where the, the angels were guarding the tree of life. And we even believe that Cain and Abel may have made their sacrifice there. But anyway, he was thinking, I'm running away from God. Notice that Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden. And then they, actually because they didn't want to go, they were driven out of the garden. But Cain makes a conscious choice to say, no, I'm out of here. I'm checking out. I am done. And he wanted to, wait, he run, wanted to run from the presence of the Lord. We know other characters in the Bible that wanted to run from the presence of God. Well, Jonah's one of the first ones that comes to mind, right? He fled from the presence of the Lord. He took a ship, got in a boat, thinking he'll sail to Tarshish. But as David wrote in the Psalms, he, he asked this great question, where can I flee from your presence? You know, if I, if I ascend to the mountaintops, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. There's nowhere you can go where you can really run from God. We, we try, don't we? Humans often try, but we're not successful because God, not only is he omnipresent, but he wants to chase you down because he loves you. He, he is the father that sees the prodigal and goes running towards him to bring him home. And so here we also see that in Genesis 4, if we fast forward a little bit, he said, back when... Um, Cain said, you have driven me today from the ground. Now watch what Cain is saying. Back when Cain killed his brother, he said, you've driven me and taken away from the ground and from your face. He's blaming it on God. But then you see in verse 15, God says, no, that's not so. I'm not driving you out. And, and you think that everybody's going to want to kill you. I'm going to protect you. In fact, I'm going to make a pronouncement right here. I'm going to put a mark on you. We don't know exactly what that mark was, but I'm going to put a mark on you. And if anybody even tries to kill you, I'm going to punish them sevenfold. So stop playing the victim here, Cain. Do we, do we know people today who play the victim? Cain is definitely playing the victim. He, he's like, oh, God sent me away. God's, no, he didn't. You went away. You're running away. And, and he said, well, God's going to have somebody kill me. No, I'm not. I'm going to protect you, even though you don't deserve it. Sin blinds us to the point that we are blaming God for things that he didn't do and running from him because of what we've done or others have done to us. We have a phrase today called de-churched. People who used to be in church but got hurt, got offended, the pastor did something scandalous, a deacon crossed them wrong way, somebody gossiped about them, and, and let's just say the church was totally wrong, but they decide I'm going to give up on God because of what someone did to me. That, that's flawed think, thinking, people. That is, do you stop going to the dentist because you had one bad dentist? I sure hope not. If you want to keep your teeth, you need to just find a better dentist. Do you stop going to the grocery store because a, a checker was rude to you? No, you maybe find a better grocery store or go to aisle 19 instead of her aisle, you know, whatever it may be. We don't give up on a lot of things when we get offended. Why do we give up on church? Because someone offended us? Now, you just need to find maybe a better church, you know? And again, there's good reasons and bad reasons to leave a church. The number one reason you should ever have to change is for doctrinal reasons. If the truth is not being taught there, if the gospel is not being preached, if there's major hypocrisy or false doctrine, then you need to try to fix it. And if you can't fix it, then yes, maybe you need to go. But if they didn't ask you to sing, or if you didn't like the color of the carpet, or all a lot of petty things that people will leave churches over, we need to kind of grow a spine and just man up or woman up and just work through these details. Because your family isn't perfect, and neither is your church family. And so people will often run and say, well, yeah, I used to go to church, but then something happened and I got my feelings hurt. And hey, you know what? Did, did the 11 disciples bail on Jesus because of Judas? Oh yeah, there was this guy. He was, in fact, he was the treasurer. He was one of the main 12. And Jesus put him in charge of all this. And I didn't agree with that decision then. And then Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus got crucified. So yeah, I'm not going to be a disciple anymore. 
I'm so glad the 11 didn't give up on Jesus because of what Judas did. Don't you give up on Jesus because of what some other knucklehead does, okay? Jesus has never failed you, and Jesus never will. He will never fail you. So Cain knew his wife, and she conceived, and she bore Enoch. Now, let me just tell you that you might get confused as you're reading through Genesis 4 and 5, because you're going to see the name Enoch twice, and you're going to say that, see the name Lamech twice, and it's two different Enochs, and it's two different Lamechs. A lot of people will point that and say, look, it's got Enoch over here in Cain's genealogy, and it has Enoch over here in Abel's genealogy. There's a contradiction in the Bible. Um, do you have more than one relative named John? <laughs> These are common names. They show up in things like that. You know, you, you, in my family, my dad was Frank. My brother was Frank. Oh, there's a contradiction in your family. No, there's just more than one person named Frank. And so there's more than two. There's two Enochs. There's two Lamechs. You say, well, there's only a few people around. No, no, no. There's millions of people at this point, as you'll see here in just a moment. So if you follow the genealogies, we're, we're talking this morning about good family and bad family. Good family and bad family. So we've got Cain, Abel, and Seth. First, second, and third. And, and actually, we don't know that they're first, second, third. They're just first, second, third that are talked about because several times, as you'll see, it says Cain, Adam and Eve had several other children. Other children, other children, all throughout this genealogy. They're just hitting the highlights here. So Cain, we know, is firstborn, and Abel probably was secondborn. We don't know if there's how many are between Abel and Seth. We don't know, if any, okay? But we're going to look at these, the genealogies of this. So if you look at Cain's line, his firstborn son is Enoch, and then he had these other guys, and he has a Lamech as well. And then if you look at, and Abel doesn't have a genealogy. Whether he had kids or not, we don't know. But his life was taken from him because he was killed by his brother out of jealousy. But then you see also an Enoch and a Lamech in Seth's genealogy, but they're further down. So again, not a contradiction in the Bible. And you know, that's amazing. Young people, you're going to hear from college professors, the Bible is full of contradictions. And they're going to point to stuff like this. And yet this, the explanation is so simple. You could say to a college professor, say, hey, do you have two people in your family with the same name? Is that a contradiction? Why all of a sudden do we just brutal to the Bible, but we're not using the same thing on ourselves? So you look at the family tree here. Actually, let me go to this verse here. So it says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived. She bore Enoch, and he built a city. Now, cities on their own aren't bad. But you have to understand what God just got done telling their parents, Adam and Eve. Be, go into all the world, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. In other words, spread out, have babies, fill the earth with human beings. And they're deciding to gather together. It's very similar to the Tower of Babel. Okay, where everybody, God tells them to spread out. And like, no, 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 we're going to be one. In fact, we don't need you, God. We're going to build a tower to heaven. We, we, we can make our own way to heaven. We don't need you. And so that's when God confounds the languages and scatters it out. God is not against cities, but people can't seem to do cities right. The reason I say God's not against cities is because when the kingdom comes, what's going to come out of heaven? The new heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. God's going to make the perfect city. In the meantime, people can't get cities right. What are cities known for? High crime, homelessness, drug infestation, you name it. And really, why would people want to live in that atmosphere? It's all about the cheddar. It's all about making more money. It's, uh, yeah, I'm willing to put up with crime. I'm going to put bars on my window. I'm going to have, I'm going to arm myself. I'm going to do whatever I do because I want to make money. Even if it does expose my family to a lot of unsafe and immoral things, I'm here for the money. And that's usually what people do in a lot of city situations. Now, I'm not saying if you live in a city, you're a bad person, okay? I'm just saying the motivation for the way people do cities today makes things worse, not better. God's going to show us the perfect city in the New Jerusalem. But Enoch built, builds a city. So we see a lot of technology going on here. And here's what's interesting is you see in archaeology a lot of these things that are backed up that all of a sudden there appears these massive structures. And you don't see some in-between structures other than that. But anyway, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Notice what Cain is most proud of. Does he name the city after God? Does he say this is the city of God? 
Or does he name this city the, the place of salvation? Does he name this city the refuge of God? No, he names it after what he's most proud of, and that's his son. And we need to be super careful that parents, your children don't become your idols. I, I, I'm going to confess my sins here this morning. I, um, I have a lot of kids, and most of them are in church and serving God. And there was for a very long time, I was actually very proud in a sinful way of my kids. I was very eager to tell people, oh yeah, my my oldest son, he's a pastor, and my second oldest son's a youth pastor, and then my daughter graduated with a master's in education, is teaching at a Christian school, and then my daughter, you know, Lake Jackson, she goes to First Baptist Missouri. I was very proud to tell you my kids were all serving God, because that made me feel like a good dad. But then you have a kid that goes off the rails, you know, and it's like, oh, wow, <laughs> that kind of shoots you down. And you, and, you, and you realize that you can't idolize your kids. You can't try to live vicariously through them. Have you ever seen parents do that with sports? Man, what do you think baseball and girls softball is all about? Why are we screaming and threatening to kill and shoot umpires? It's because my little angel was safe and you called her out. You know, you talk about idolizing your kids. This is, I believe, what's happening. Enoch builds this city. And, and, and Cain helps them build this city, and they name it. I'm going to name this city after you, Enoch. I'm going to name it after you. I'm, I'm most proud of you. But I, I think about my own family tree. As far as I know, I don't know much about my family tree, but my great-grandfather was not a believer. And nobody in the Milborn family was, were believers. Then my grandfather was not a believer. My dad was not a believer. My dad was very much an agnostic, very much the skeptic. He would always say things like, well, you know, you can't believe all the Bible. And how do you know that there's not many ways to heaven? How do you know that there's even a heaven? You, you can't, how arrogant is it of you, Gary, to say that Jesus is the only way? And we're having this discussion when I'm like 14. And so my dad was very much not a believer. But then I was the youngest of six kids. And I got invited to vacation Bible school, and I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even though I was only nine years old, I felt convicted by my sin. I knew that I deserved God's punishment and God's wrath, but God loved me so much that he sent his only son to die in Gary's place so that I could be forgiven of all my sins and live forever with him. And I accepted Christ as my Savior. And even though I was only nine, it was like transformational in my mind. The light switches all went on, and it was like, wow, this is amazing. And so... I begged my sister Gwen to come to church with me, ride the bus to church with me. And, you know, I kept bugging her and bugging her and bugging her for about a year. And so finally she said, you know, I'll go. Just get off my back, you know. And she went to church. She got saved, you know. And then a few years later, my brother had a worker, a co-worker of his, invite him to church, and he got saved. And then my sister Nancy was in California, and uh, she got invited to church, and she got saved. And so now four of the six of us were sa- were knew Christ as Savior. And so... Family gatherings were kind of interesting at this point, you know. But when my brother had three kids, and now they're all adults, they're in church and serving Jesus. And most of my kids are in church and serving Jesus. And, and now the name Milbourne, where it used to be unbelievers, the majority of us are now believers. And what I'm saying to you is just like that nuclear threat, your decisions now affect generations to come. What will be the bias generations from now, Jaime? You know, what will be the, the, your ancestry, Lauren and Patty? What will be your great-great-grandkids? It's all based on what you guys do now and the decisions you make now. Yes, you may want them to be the smartest kid, the fastest kid, the, most, the best kid on the football team. Those are all good and fine. But loving Jesus has to be number one. Has to be number one. It goes on to say that Enoch bore Irad, and here's the genealogy that we went through, we didn't read earlier. And Irad fathered Mahujel, hard name, and Mahujel uh, fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. Okay, and it, what, this is not just, re, you read through the Bible, you think, why is all this here? It's important, and I will show you why. And then it says, and Lamech, now watch this, Lamech is the seventh from Adam in Abel's line. And Enoch is the seventh from Adam and Enoch's line. And these two are totally opposites. The seventh, that number is important. It shows that this guy is complete, which is number seven, completely godly. And this guy is completely evil. And we're going to show you why here in just a second. Lamech, he had a big problem. He's the first guy to practice polygamy. He has two wives. 
And the name of one of Ada and the other was named Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So you see different vocations developing here. You see a nomad lifestyle developing. You see a farmer, a rancher lifestyle developing here. And his brother's name was Jubal. And he was the father of all those who did play the lyre and the pipes. And now you see instruments being made and perfected. Because, you know, all this is happening in the first few hundred years. And all this technology is happening rapidly. It's not cavemen going, me, you know, and people grunting and acting like apes. You're seeing technology happening quickly. Zilla also bore Tubal-Cain, great name for your grandkid there. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So we got metallurgy happening here, all kinds of high technology, without computer, without um, all kinds of instruments that are making these things happen. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was named Nama. And what's interesting about that is her name is Pleasant. And so here, God slips in the name of a woman, which usually doesn't happen in genealogies in a male-dominated society. But God's showing, hey, women are equal too. But in this case, it's not necessarily a good thing. There's three namas in the Bible, and none of them are good. And it's saying she's pleasant, she's good-looking. It's basically saying all it was was about the external. It's just about the external. I think that's why God slips that in there. And Lamech said to his wives, okay, so in fact, the word he said, if you look at the structure of what he said, it looks like a song. There's a meter, in Hebrew, there's even a rhyme. And so it's like Lamech comes home and he's singing a song, which sounds weird for us men in this modern Western society. But in that culture, men sang songs and people chanted things. And so he's doing this and he does this to his wives. Again, wives, plural. And so let me just say that right here, the Bible does not condone polygamy. People say, well, there's polygamy in the Bible. Look how many people. David had hundreds of wives. Solomon had thousands of wives. See, the Bible condones polygamy. No, no. There's a difference between being descriptive and prescriptive. The Bible describes what's happening, but it is not recommending what is happening. In fact, every single time you see polygamy in the Bible is a bad situation. It is problematic. Did David get blessed by his hundreds of wives? No. Solomon especially, his, he gave into idolatry and many of his sons gave into idolatry because of their foreign wives. Polygamy is always presented as a bad thing, but people will use and abuse the Bible to prove things that they want to prove. People always twist the Bible. Um, and so you will even see now in our LGBTQ plus that the, you know what the plus is for? It's meant to include polygamy and pedophilia. So Gary, you're making that up. No, no, it's already happening. It is already in the news. You will see things like this all over the United States now on the internet, legalized polygamy now. One of the most, this is a case that is going to go to the Supreme Court. This is, a, this is the Brown family. It's called, they have a TV show called Sister Wives. They are polygamists, and they are suing. And the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear their case, and they might legalize polygamy in America. And you, you are seeing that the, what God has instituted, a, a man and a woman, one man, one woman for a lifetime, our country and our world is trying to rip it all apart and say, hey, anything goes. And this is not about love is love. This is about God's design. And do we trust God that the way he does it is best? Do we trust him for that? And America's saying, no, we don't trust you, God. We think we know better. We can have sex with whoever, whenever, for whatever reason. It does not matter. But this is not just an attack on our values. This is an attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you missed last week's message, I'd recommend you go watch back and watch that online because that's what this is about. That Christ is our bridegroom. The church is his bride. And he loves us. And you see all throughout the Old Testament that God wants a husband to be loyal to one wife. And he is jealous of others when we go after other gods. So Lamech said, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. And, and he says, I have killed a man for wounding me. Now there's so many things wrong with that. This guy just wounded him. We don't know what flesh wound. You know, he punched him. He stabbed him, whatever. But he, he didn't just stab him back or wound him back. He goes the extra mile and he kills him. That's why the Bible says, hey, when you, when you dole out punishment, you do an eye for an eye. It's not saying you literally rip out somebody's eye. They're saying punishment should be fit the crime. But Lamech goes above and beyond to just brutally kill this guy. And he says, even then, he says, it was a young man for struggling me. It was somebody younger than me. He hit me. 
and I killed him. And he's not just confessing his sins. He is bragging. He's putting this in the form of a song. And here's his song. He says, if Cain, if God said anybody who kills Cain is going to be, have revenge seven times what he did, anybody touches me, it's going to be 70 times seven. You bring it on. Come on. I killed a young man. Yeah, I did. And you want to come on to me? You think God's revenge on Cain's attackers is bad? I'm going to take it out on you 77 times worse than Cain's threat. So he's bragging here. This is not just some, oh, I'm sorry, I, I sinned. In fact, here's, here's the way that it reads out. And again, in Hebrew, it's written like a song. And in the middle, it's the chorus. And the chorus is, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. And if you understand chiastic structure, which we talk about here all the time, the middle of the message is the main point. And what are the two main words that he is singing about? Me. Me. It's me, myself, and I. I am the most important person. He, he is guilty of the me monster big time. He, he's the kind of guy, if you met him and you said, hey, yeah, I, I have 16 cows. He's, oh, yeah, I got 116. How about that? I mean, that would be Lamech, that he would be the kind of guy that would one-up you in every conversation. Everything he has is better. And he's and even bragging about how my murder, you think Cain killed Abel? I beat a young man half my age. Bring it. You want to get revenge on me? Bring it. And so Lamech's extremely, extremely self-centered. You know, it's one thing to, to sin and be ashamed of it and hide it. And we've, we've all done that, right? You've had a sin that you know, I know this is wrong. I don't want my kids to know. I don't want people to know. But I can't seem to shake this or well, I'm not willing to shake this, whatever. But at least we have some shame about it, right? But this guy is totally the opposite. It's another thing, a level of sin that is openly bragging about it as evidence of the hardness of a heart, by, that's a heart hardened by sin. And that's, again, that's so prevalent in our culture. It's not people are hiding their immoral lifestyles. They are flaunting it. They're saying, you have to affirm my lifestyle. In fact, I want to teach my lifestyle to your kindergartners. I want to tell them the details of my perverted lifestyle, and I want to have a story time to read it to them. It's just like there's, it's brazen in the boldness of the hardness of hearts today. We need to be careful as Christians that we not fall into that. If you have a sin you're struggling with, you need to be super careful because you may be ashamed of it now, but if you don't repent, there may be a time that you're openly living in it and you don't care. We need, the hardness of heart can creep on us quickly. So here we go to a better part of the story. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. How about Seth back there? Good name, right, Seth? Okay, so for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. This is beautiful. Think about all that Eve has been through. She has her firstborn son. She thinks that, hey, maybe this is the Messiah. And he's anything but. He's a brutal murderer, unrepentant sinner. And then her other son, who she loved dearly, is gone. You've got a dead son and a rebellious son. Eve's in a heartbroken situation. But you know what she does? When she gets a, another son, she says, thank you, God. Thank you for giving me another son. She has made these circumstances not make her bitter, but make her better. And, and you, there's many people in this room who are going through a difficult time right now. And it's your choice. It is your choice what you do with it. You can let God use this to grow your heart, to grow you spiritually, so that you can become a better person and not a, a bitter person. And, and praise God for Eve. You see Adam and Eve, even though they sinned against God, and they, they caused all the ripple effect that's hit generations to this day, yet they are trying their best to serve God and giving Him credit for everything in their life. So in spite of tragically losing Tucson, Eve stays faithful to God and doesn't blame Him, but praises Him for her new son. In verse 26 says, to Seth also his son was born, and he was called, his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, this is an interesting phrase. Call upon the name of the Lord. In the Old Testament, this was a way of describing believers. It talks about worshiping with those that call upon the name of the Lord. And that so-and-so called upon the name of the Lord. It means, which God do you pray to? Remember, again, Jonah. Okay? Jonah, he's on the boat, and God sends a great storm, 
And all the sailors start breaking out their gods and their little statues and start praying to it. Hey, God, stop to this little God, gee, God, stop this storm. And none of their gods are working. And they're like, hey, Jonah, call upon your God. Which God do you call upon? He's like, well, I believe in Jehovah, the one and true living God. Well, Well, call upon him. So it's basically saying, who do you believe in? When you call upon the Lord, it's the one you pray to, the one you believe in. This is the phrase here that you see. And so what happens is when Enosh comes on the scene, there's millions of people on the planet now because people are living hundreds of years. There's lots of baby making going on. And so, but Enosh changed a generation. People said, hey, I want to be like Enosh. Who's your God? I want to call upon the true and living God. What a great testimony to have a child that caused the people around him to call upon the name of the Lord. Man, that, that is the greatest blessing as a parent. That you look and say, hey, look at what my daughter is doing. She's speaking out. She's only in third grade, and she's letting her class know about Jesus. Nate and Tori, man, what better joy when you guys are in your 50s and 60s say, man, look at Zeppelin. Loves Jesus. Outspoken for God. That's what we are praying for, amen? And you know what? This is why you need a church. This is why you need a church, because statistically speaking, the kids who stay faithful to Jesus, who stay in church, not only have their parents truly believing what's being taught, but other adults speaking into their lives. When you have other people saying, yeah, yeah, I love the Lord too. And they're like, wow, my parents aren't crazy. Look at all these people who actually do love Jesus. None of them perfect, but we actually love Jesus. Now, I know that they don't want this, but I'm going to say this anyway. I really appreciate Charles and Amanda. They don't, they don't have kids, but they love to be around kids, and they are one of the best influences on Isaiah and Caitlin. And I really, really appreciate that because it tells Isaiah and Caitlin that mom and dad are not stupid. That look, look at Charles and Amanda. They're successful people. Charles is cool. Amanda's pretty cool. I mean, look at these cool people right here. And they, they love Jesus. I guess my parents aren't off base. And we need that. That's what the body of Christ is for, is that we're all together believing in Jesus Christ, believing in his gospel, the death, and resurrection. And we believe that these things are important. And it's not just mom and dad, but it's, we are all reinforcing this in the next generation. But we need, it causes us to say, well, what message are you sending to your kids? I remember years ago, about, golly, probably like 30 years ago, I was counseling a family that had two teenage daughters. Both of them were in my youth ministry. And one of them was straight A's, captain of the volleyball team, just good girl. The other one was rebellious, going off the rails. And we were in a count situation, and I was talking to Tommy, the dad, and I said, hey, you know, tell me what's going on. And he's just talking about, I don't know what to do with her. He was just, and it was almost implying, I don't, I don't think he said the words, but like, why can't she be like her sister? Okay? And I said to the one daughter, I said, what do you love? What are you excited about? She said, I love to paint. She said, I like, I like art, and that's my thing. I'm not, I'm not an athlete like my sister. I love art. And I said to, to dad, I said, so when, she, when and I said, I said, tell me about volleyball. She's talking like, he got all excited about that. And I said, so when they win a game and she spikes it and gets the final point, I said, he's, oh, man, I'm up off the stands. And his wife's like, yeah, I have to tell him to calm down. I said, when's the last time you got that excited about her painting? And the room got quiet. Because we tend to broadcast onto our kids what we're most excited about. And if it's sports, and I love sports as much as anybody in this room, if not more, but if our biggest priority for our kids is sports, they could be great athletes but not love Jesus. They can make straight, if your biggest priority is you've got to make straight A's, you've got to make straight A's. And you know, there's some cultures that that's like, you don't bring home a B, you just don't do it. You know, and that's the biggest value in that culture. And there's some cultures that value, you know, all kinds of different things. Sometimes it's looks and a bit lot, and God forbid if it be popularity, we'll do anything to make our kids the most popular in our class. All those things can send your kid to hell if you don't make Jesus number one. When you get excited that they memorized a Bible verse, when you get excited when they showed love to a kid that nobody else wanted to hang around, that, that when they helped an elderly person, when they showed concern for the homeless, when they do Christian things, that ought to be, yes, good job. I am so proud of you. We should be just as excited as that if they scored the winning touchdown in a football game. We, we, what kind of message are we communicating to our kids? 
And I accidentally touched my screen. Here we go. Can you get me back on the right slide there, Matt? I'm sorry, I touched and went to a song on here. Okay, so it says in verse 1, as we start chapter 5, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, who is writing the book of Genesis? Moses, right? And so Moses is writing all this up to this point. Thank you. And um, I believe what's happening here is there is a scroll called the book of Adam. And Moses is compiling things because there's oral tradition, but there's some written tradition things going on, and he's compiling it all into And so he's going to insert here and transcribe an already known document called the book of Adam. And he's going to insert that here. And, and so a lot of people look at this and say, wait a minute, this sounds like it's a repeat all over again, like another creation story. No, he's saying, hey, here's, here's what Adam wrote down, okay? God revealed to me all the details, but I'm going to give you what Adam wrote down from a pers personal perspective perspective. It says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Again, repeating and affirming that. He made them male and female. And man, those words couldn't be any more true today and more important today than ever when in a world that doesn't even know the difference between the two. And it says, and he blessed them and he named them man, which means mankind. It's, it's a general neutral term. And he named them that when they were created. We, we live in a messed up world today, and, and it's all because of the confusion of sin. But this is a report that you probably didn't hear on the news, but Britain's National Health Service made this statement. The vast majority of children who are confused and teenagers who are gender confused return to their so-called birth gender as their identity, and the confusion is a transient phase. First of all, let's get some numbers straight. Only 0.6 people, 0.6 of 1% of the population identify as transgender. If you watch the news, you think the whole country is transgender. We're talking about less than, not even, barely half of 1% of the population identify this way. And so when you've got a six-year-old boy who, for whatever reason, is experiencing gender dysphoria, like he's confused whether he's a boy or a girl, or whether he should act like a boy or a girl, Britain's medical scientists have said, We've watched this for a generation. We've studied this. And guess what? When they hit puberty, oh yeah, that's right, I'm a boy. Whew. Mom and dad are like, great. But you know what we're doing? We're giving them hormone blockers. We're doing double mastectomies on 10-year-old girls. We are mutilating boys and girls because just for a short phase that might last from a few months to a few years, we're going to do radical surgery on them and radically destroy their bodies and sterilize them for life because of a short phase of confusion that only happens to a very small percentage of kids. Super small. They exaggerate the numbers, but the numbers are super small. They want to act like this is a big portion of the population when it's not. And for those very few who do suffer from gender dysphoria, it's a phase. It's a phase. We all get confused. People can be confused about same-sex attraction for a short period of their life. They can get confused about a lot of things. Are we going to radically destroy their lives because of that to promote a, a radical agenda to justify our adult perverted lifestyle? That's what's happening in our world today. And we have to, be, we have to stand against these things that are absolutely wrong. So notice the ages in this genealogy that we're about to cover. Just notice the ages. I won't cover everything in detail. So Adam, he had lived 130 years after he fathered a son as low like this. He, he lives for a total of 930, but he's still giving birth, he's still conceiving how uh, uh, creating children at his old age, okay? And at this time, people live a whole lot longer. I'll explain why here in a second. So, and then the days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years. Now, think of this, by the way. When, um, I never thought of this before, but when Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain, they were approximately the same age. Because <laughs> Adam and Eve, their birthday was just a, a year ago or so. Because... Because they didn't have, the, they, their birthday, they were born automatically 24 or whatever they were. They were born mature adults. So if they went to celebrate birthdays, like, yeah, my son's 130, I'm 130. How's that possible? But anyway, just a little interesting trivia there. But notice it says he had other sons and daughters. And this, pray, this phrase is repeated. So don't read the genealogy as this is the only kids they have. And how in the world could the population of the world have millions of people when these are the only people? No, there, there, there's other sons and daughters all throughout the genealogies. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930s, and then he died. The first man who ever lived died at 930. Now, this is also super important. 
because Adam overlapped with Methuselah, Methuselah knew Noah, and Noah went into the ark, and then all the world was destroyed, and they're starting over. So guess what? People in that generation, they all knew about Adam, and many of them knew about him firsthand. Like, oh, come on, you're telling me about a couple in a garden eating a piece of fruit off a tree and how that's how all this happened? Yeah, Adam and Eve, yeah. In fact, here they are. Adam and Eve, hey, welcome to the party. I was just telling about your story and how you don't have belly buttons and all that stuff. And they're like, they're like, wow, really? Show me. And they're like, hey, look, I have no belly button. And they're like, wow, this must be true. All these things that was happening, and God let Adam live for this incredibly long time because from Adam to Noah was about a 1,000 years. And that's a whole other interesting thing about prophecy. From Noah to Abraham, a 1,000 years. From Abraham to Moses, a 1,000 years. From Moses to Jesus, a 1,000 years. 4,000 years. Jesus has been gone for how many? 2,000 years. The millennial kingdom is going to be how long? A thousand years. God's one week of history, 7,000 years. So is Jesus coming again soon? Better believe it. There you go. That's, what, that's why these genealogies are so important. So when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after his fa- he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So again, people try to say, well, they want to criticize the genealogies in the Bible, but they leave out the detail that there's other people being born that were not being recorded. This is just the highlights. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan for 815 years, and he had what? Other sons and daughters. And thus, all the days of Enosh were 905, and he died. And when Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Methaliel. And Kenan lived after he fathered Mahaliel 840 years. And this is all so that we can get history. We can tell how old the earth is so we can add up these dates. And that's why God's putting all these boring numbers in there. Verse 14 says, And thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and then he died. And Mahaliel had lived 65 years. He fathered Jared. Mahaliel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years. And what? Had other sons and daughters. It's like God knew there'd be skeptics who would try to rip the genealogies apart. So he kept inserting that phrase in there. And Jared lived after he had fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And watch this. This is what we're going to talk about next week as I come to the conclusion today. Enoch walked with God. And if you want to read Jude verse 14... The New Testament has more to say about Enoch than the Old Testament. It's really fascinating. In fact, there's a book of Enoch. We'll talk about that next week as well. Anyway, after that, he followed Methuselah 300 years after he had other sons and daughters. And of course, we know Methuselah for what? What is Methuselah known for? Oldest man in the Bible, 969 years. And so God is putting all these numbers to show, hey, wait a minute, watch this. Adam and Methuselah overlapped. Okay, that's super important. But why are all these people living for so long? almost just short of a thousand years. In fact, they would have probably exceeded a thousand years had there not been sin, obviously. But anyway, that's a whole other subject. But the, think about where the world is prior to the flood. Okay? There, there is a canopy surrounding the earth. Ultraviolet rays are being filtered out. It's, it is a primarily veget- it's a exclusively a vegetarian diet up until Noah. Okay, now people are not obeying at this, at this point. But people are living healthier. Also, the second law of thermodynamics says that genetics and everything gets worse. So Adam and Eve were created in their prime, created to live in bodies forever. Think about that. Think about the way the human body replaces tissue over and over again. And how like every seven years, your entire body, you, don't, you have all new cells. So you are being remade constantly by the food that you take in, which is also important. And so... But what we see is that the ages will start going down after the flood. And the Bible even tells you that by reason of strength, you might live to about 74. And of course, that's a pretty good average right now with, with medicine and life support and things like that. We can extend it back into the 80s. But the Bible told us that pretty much 74 would be about lifespan. All these things are happening. So, um, so what's up with these genealogies? This is important. Adam's name means man. Follow me carefully here. 
Seth's name means appointed. Eve said, God has appointed me another child. Enosh's name means mortal or frail or even miserable. It means, you know, basically to be, to, to be human and fl- a flawed human. Canaan means sorrow or a dirge or an elegy, a song of sadness. Mahaliel means to be blessed of God. Jared means shall come down. One shall come down. Enoch means commencement or a teaching, what you teach as you go forth. Methuselah, Methuselah means his death shall bring, and, and I believe it means his death shall bring the flood. So just to skip forward a little bit, when, when Methuselah died, I believe that's when God said, okay, get in the ark. Because his, 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 his life, his death means it'll, it, the judgment's going to come. Anyway, um, Lamech means despairing, or, or his root means to, from lament. That's why Lamech sounds like lament. And then Noah means comfort or rest. Watch this. Look at all those phrases. Let your eyes scan those phrases, okay? And watch what God is teaching us through the genealogy. It means that man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring to the despairing comfort and rest. The gospel in the genealogy. The next time you're tempted to just breeze through the genealogy and say, I've done my Bible reading today, realize, take time, get a concordance out, look up the names, and find out what they mean. God, from the very beginning, from Genesis 3.15, all through the Old Testament, it's all pointing to the death of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 says, in him, in Jesus, this promised one, this God who shall come down, who shall bring comfort and rest, we are redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might, what? Live through him. Those genealogies, so-and-so lived so many years and they died. So many lived so many hundred years and they died and they died and they died and they died. And Jesus says, I'm come that you may live. And that, it's beautiful what Jesus Christ has done for us. My question for you this morning is, do you know him personally? Teenagers, do you know Jesus Christ personally? Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior? Adults, have you made that decision to, to give your life to Jesus Christ and to believe that he died for your sins, that you're a sinner who needs a Savior, that he was buried and he buried all your sins in the grave and that he rose again victoriously for eternal life for all who will trust in him? Would you pray with me this morning? If you're a believer, would you pray that the Holy Spirit of God would open eyes and hearts. And if you're, you're not sure you're saved, if you're not a believer in Christ, today could be your day of salvation. You, if you would just realize that you're a sinner, you've lied, you've cheated, you've stolen, we've all done it. And you will be held accountable for your sin. We will all be punished for our sin. But the great news is, the good news is, Jesus took the punishment that should be yours. Jesus took the punishment that should be mine. Right now, you could decide to trust him as your Lord and Savior. Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. I believe you died for me. I believe you were buried. I believe you rose again. And I give my life to you. I trust you as my Lord and Savior. Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us so much and proving it. Thank you for the, these stories, this history that we read in the Bible that illustrates how sinful man is, but how loving God is. So Father, we just pray that you would um, help us to always not only love the gospel, but to live the gospel. And we ask this for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. If you made a decision to trust Christ, man, let me know. This is my cell phone number. Please call me or text me anytime. Let's talk about what it means to be a believer. Maybe you're like Gary. I want to do this, but I really don't understand. I still have questions. Great, let's talk. I'll, I'll take you to lunch, buy you some coffee or a Coke or whatever, and we'll, we'll talk, okay? All right, we're going to do question and answer time right now. Uh, Miss Amanda, would you be glad to help me? God is good, amen? Amen. All right. Let me get my phone out here. You can text your question anytime to that number right there. And if you'd rather... Um, Raise your hand. You can do that as well. There's, and before I do the first question, let me just tell you, um, we talk about being salt and light in the world. 
one way that you can influence the world is to vote. And we don't tell you how to vote. We tell you to look at your Bible, to pray, and vote accordingly. So get out there and vote and make it be a difference maker. All right. All right. Is there a parallel between Lamech's song comparing Cain's revenge to his own? And in uh, parentheses, sevenfold compared to 77-fold. And Jesus talking to Peter about the number of times to forgive his neighbor, uh, seven times compared to 77 times seven. Yeah, yeah. Good job, Ashley. Ashley Sharp watching from home. Um, I thought about that and I read about that and I, I couldn't make a direct connection because Jesus says 70 times seven and Lamech says 77 times. So that's two different numbers if you're any good at math. But I do think there's a parallel there between I'm going to take total revenge and Jesus says, I want you to give total forgiveness. So I do think there's a parallel there. I don't want to say that Jesus was exactly quoting that. I just think the whole concept of sevens is replete throughout the Bible. So I'm not going to say Jesus was thinking of that Lamech song when he said that. So I don't, that would be a stretch. But I do think the concept is there. Good, good question. What kind of songs did Jesus sing with his disciples? It says he sang a hymn which there was some well-known hymns there in the first century that were theologically driven. Um, and I don't know, we don't, but we don't know exactly what it was. It was some type of praise to God. It could have been one of the more theologically rich psalms because in the first century they definitely sang psalms, but Colossians says they sang psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So, uh, psalms are the psalms or any scripture set to music if you want to broaden the category. Hymns are things that teach us theology, you know, about the Trinity, about redemption, about eternity, about the second coming. Those would be hymns. And then spiritual songs, believe it or not, were meant to be repetitive. They were like chants. And so a lot of the big criticism of today's contemporary praise and music is it's repetitive. Well, that's what spiritual songs were. And of course, many of you grew up with the song, God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. And we sang that over and over again, and there was no criticism back then. So you can get too repetitive, I think, um, but there's a balance there. That's all I have. All right. Any other questions? Bob Foe. That's, that's a great observation. And that's an actually a difference between Eastern and Western culture. In other parts of the world where there's a shame and honor culture, it's not about the individual. It's about the village and your family and the community. And you don't do anything to shame the village, your family, or your community. You pay honor to your family, the village, the community. In America, we're like, you do whatever you want. You do you. You just find your own path. It doesn't matter what your parents think, what your relatives think. You just do your own thing. It doesn't matter how much disgrace it brings to your family, your village, or honor. And there's a balance because in an Eastern culture, they're too much worried about what their parents think. And they might not even follow in God's footsteps because their parents may not want them to. But in the Western culture, we're all about individualism. There needs to be a biblical balance. And the Bible strikes that for us that we do and need to be outraged and involved in our community when things go wrong and things are immoral. And they'll say, well, that's none of my business. I just like to keep to myself. We have an, an American culture that's all just keep to yourself while the world goes to hell. And we need to change that. We need to be more outspoken. There's a balance. We don't live in a theocracy. We're not trying to impose our religion on everybody else. We're just trying to uphold moral standards, which is best for our, us as a nation. Any other questions? That's it. Great. Well, let's stand.